So, you know, last week or last month when we talked, we talked about really, you know, if you love God, you know God. And if you don't love God, you don't know God. And it's so important to uh, know God and, and His love, but also at the same time, love isn't everything. That's just one characteristic of God. You, have to under, you can't understand the, the totality of His love unless you understand all of God. So we'll get in a little bit of that today. We touched on that a little bit the last time. And uh, this, uh, uh, well, one other thing, uh, for anybody that wasn't here last month, we, we had a test. It was a take-home test, so nobody had to. So if you want to take this take-home test, uh, anybody that doesn't have this, there's extras if people uh, misplace their other one. Ten simple, practical ways of knowing whether we abide in love. So uh, with scripture references. So uh, that's a takeaway for anybody that wants that afterwards. So today's uh, message is titled, uh, Behold the Goodness. And uh, you'll, you'll, follow, you'll see a lot of uh, the references I make here are in the notes, so hopefully the notes are, are a good memory of, of what you heard today. And the first one there is the quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Tozer was right. A proper conception of God provides the foundation of all that is absolutely essential to spiritual life and health. On the other hand, for those with a seriously distorted, distorted concept of who God is, genuine faith is utterly impossible. Therefore, to misconstrue God's character can even be spiritually fatal. That is the real danger posed by the contemporary misunderstanding of God's love. In spite of the clarity of Scripture of God's love, Millions are kept in spiritual darkness by a notion of God that is completely out of balance. They want God who is loving, but not wrathful. The God of Scripture doesn't fit the bill. They therefore worship a God of their own making. Their thoughts about God constitutes sheer idolatry. For this reason, there is an inherent danger in focusing too intently on any one attribute of God such as his love. The apostle wrote, and here's where the title of the message comes from, Behold, therefore, the goodness, but then it goes on, and the severity of God. And next month we'll talk about the severity of God. That's Romans 11.22. It is crucial that we maintain the biblical balance in our thinking. While we study God's love, we must bear in mind that God is also holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7.26 reminds us of that. And that he is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 7.11. Going on in Psalms, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. That comes from Psalm 7, 
12 and 13. For our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. He is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate him, Exodus 25 and Deuteronomy 5, 9. God's love, measureless as it is, does not negate any of those truths. We must not stress divine love to the extent that we distort these other qualities, crucial truths about God. Unfortunately, that is the precise path that our culture has taken, and it's tragic. God's wrath is virtually a taboo subject. I've been in churches that won't even say the word sin. Most people could be only too willing to relegate the notion of divine wrath to the scrap heap of outmoded and unsophisticated religious ideas. There is no room for an angry God in an enlightened age as such as ours. Even some preachers who profess to believe scripture, yet knowing how people feel about an angry God, are careful to avoid such themes in favor of a friendlier message. All of this has only intensified the problem. One widespread misconception is that the angry God concept is confined to the Old Testament. And I've heard this. I've heard preachers say, oh yeah, God in the Old Testament, he was angry, he was wrathful. But now in the New Testament, he's all love. I've heard that many times from pastors. The Old Testament portrayed him as a wrathful, they say, angry deity, but only to accommodate the primitive understanding of our ancient forefathers. Supposedly, the New Testament, and particularly Jesus, corrected that faulty concept, emphasizing the love of God. Those who hold this view suggest that the loving God of the New Testament reflects a more sophisticated understanding of God than the patriarchs had. There's one serious problem with that theory. All the biblical data quite clearly refutes it. For one thing, the Old Testament has as much to say about the love of God as the New Testament. Again, and the Old Testament exhausts the loving kindness and goodness of God. In fact, the word loving kindness appears as applied to God more than 150 times in the Old Testament. In one example, Lamentations 32, 23, I think it's there in your handout, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That is a truth is emphasized from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. God's love for Israel is revealed over and over in spite of Israel's rejection. The depiction of that love is the prophecy of Hosea is unmistakably and even shocking. I mean, the story of Hosea is, is just uh, uh, unbelievable. And if I could, my in Hosea's shoes, could I do what Hosea did? You know, uh, and what Hosea did, he became a living illustration for us of the divine love in his relationship with his wife, Gomer. She became a prostitute and bore several illegitimate children. She shattered her husband's heart. She pursued her life of an adulterous harlotry. 
until she was totally (laughs) dissolute. Finally, she was placed for sale in the slave market. And what she didn't know that whole time, right, Hosea had followed her wretched career. He was behind the scenes, and he made sure her needs were met. When she was placed on that block to be sold, he bought her as his own. Took her home and treated her as if she were a virgin. Same way Jesus treats us. Hosea's laudable, generous, forgiving love for his evil wife and his willingness to take her back no matter what she had done are object lessons to illustrate God's love for a sinning Israel and for sinning sinners like ourselves. Hosea cites God's own plea to that wayward nation. Hosea 11.8, My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Remember, we're reading still from the Old Testament, love from the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God is portrayed in this manner as a God of tender mercies, infinite loving kindness, great compassion, and patient long-suffering. Just to keep the record straight, the New Testament as much as has to say about wrath of God as the Old Testament. It was Jesus himself in the New Testament who gave the fullest and most explicit descriptions of the horrors of hell. And I gave you the scriptural references, Matthew 5, Mark 9, and Luke 16, about what God had to say about hell, where the worm never dies, the flame never dies. And the New Testament also records these words of Jesus. But I will warn you, but I will warn you from whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has no authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Luke 12:5. The final New Testament description of Christ in his second coming glory says in Revelation 19:5, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So there is absolutely no basis for the notion that the New Testament changes the concept of God from wrathful to loving. The same God reveals himself to us in both Testaments. The glorious truth is that God is love from 1 John 4, 8, yet is nevertheless, in Hebrews 10, 31, tells us a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Both truths are stressed in both Testaments. One further clarification, though, needs to be made on this point. When we speak of God's love and God's wrath, we are not talking about anything like human passions. According to the best-known Protestant confession, the Westminster Confession, God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable. God's wrath and his love are fixed and steady dispositions. They are not moods or passionate emotions. He does not swing wildly from one temperament to the other. To think of God that way is to deny that he is eternally unchanging. Malachi 3.6 reminds us, I, the Lord, do not change. 
With God, there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1.17. And in Hebrews 13.8, the same, he is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Nor do God's wrath and love imply any contradiction in his nature. He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. His wrath is not inconsistent with his love because he so completely loves what is true and right, he must hate all that is false and wrong. Let me say that again. Because he is so complete, completely loves what is true and right, he must hate all that is false and wrong. Because he so perfectly loves his children, he seeks what blesses and edifies them and hates all that curses and debases them. Therefore, his wrath against sin is actually an expression of his love for his people. His chastening for the sin is proof that he is a loving father. That is, we're reminded of that in Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. And when he exercises vengeance against the enemies of truth, that also reveals his love for his chosen ones. Israel history is filled with examples of these truths. One classic example is that of Nineveh. And if you want... Uh, to follow along in any of these verses, you might want to open your book to, uh, to the book of Jonah. Uh, and you'll see a lot of references as we go through there. Nineveh was a city that was Israel's nemesis for several centuries. There both the goodness and the severity of God were dramatically put on display. In fact, nowhere are God's loving kindness and his holy wrath seen side by side more vividly in the history of Nineveh. This month we'll examine God's goodness to the city, and next month we'll see the severity of God with respect to Nineveh. So Nineveh was Sin City. We hear about Las Vegas referred to as Sin City. Well, Nineveh had it in spades. doesn't hold a candle to how bad, uh, I mean, Nineveh, Las Vegas doesn't hold a candle to Nineveh. Nineveh was so bad. Genesis 10, 8 through 12, records that Nimrod, great-grandson of Noah, founded the entire Babylonian kingdom of which Nineveh was part of. Micah 5, 6 reminds us of that, too. Nimrod's Babylon became the source of virtually every false religious system. That is why Scripture makes reference to Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and of the admonitions of the earth, Revelation 17, 5. And there's a great study on that to see how, that all, you know, how all these evils came out of Babylon. From its very beginning, Nineveh was the most important cities of the Babylonian Empire, steeped in wickedness and debauchery. Nineveh opposed everything the true God stood for, and vice versa. God stood against Nineveh for everything they stood for. In the 8th century B.C., Nineveh became the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians were known for their wicked ruthlessness. And I won't go into the details because it's very graphic and how ruthless they were to their enemies and how they slaughtered them like lambs. So I, I won't go into that detail. 
but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty sad. And after reading those details, I can see why Jonah went the other way and didn't want to go there, not because he was afraid, which I'll point out in a second, but because he didn't think they deserved to be saved because they were so evil. And I probably would have done the same thing if I was in Jonah's shoes. Nineveh represented the seat of this evil for the culture. Understandably, the Israelites hated Nineveh and all that the Assyrians represented. So a reluctant prophet and a great revival. We've studied this. Danny taught on it, I think, for a couple months on this and and preached on it for us. Uh, But a couple more things will come out. At the very height of Assyrian power, God commanded a prophet Israel to go to Nineveh and warn the people there of God's impending judgment. Not surprisingly, as I just mentioned, the prophet rebelled. That prophet was Jonah, whose history is familiar to every Sunday school student. We all know about it. (laughs) Commanded by God to go to Nineveh, Jonah boarded a ship in the Mediterranean and headed headed in the opposite direction. Jonah 1.3 tells us that. And in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. In verses 12 and 15, the sailors on the ship discovered that Jonah had angered God. And on Jonah's own instruction, they threw him overboard because the ship was about to go under and they were trying to save themselves. God had prepared a great fish to be at, the, at, at the, precisely the right spot and the fish swallowed Jonah in verse 17. Going to chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. After three days and nights in the fish's belly, Time spent by the disobedient prophet praying one of the finest prayers recorded in Scripture on repentance. So uh, that'll be your homework. Read Jonah 2, 1 through 9 for the finest prayer on repentance. The Lord, as a result, the Lord commanded the fish and vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. 2.10, Jonah 2.10. On to chapter 3. Scripture says, Now the word of Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This time, albeit reluctantly, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Lord of the Lord. Verse 3. Have you ever noticed why Jonah attempted to flee Nineveh? And as I was mentioning earlier, it was not because he feared the city as inhabitants. It was not that he was intimidated by thought of preaching God's word to pagans. Nothing indicated that Jonah was the least bit timid in the face of the Lord's enemies. In fact, what little we know about him proves he was not particularly a shy man. Jonah was candid about why he fled, his duty. This was his explanation he gave God in chapter 4, verse 2. I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Another verse that tells us about the loving kindness of God in the Old Testament. In short, because he knew God loves sinners and seeks to save them, Jonah did not want to warn the Gentile Ninevites. He preferred to keep silent and allow God's judgment to take them by surprise. And as I said, I 
probably would have had the same thoughts that he had if I was in his shoes. He would have been the happiest if God had wiped out the Ninevites from the face of the earth without any warning. His worst fear was the city could repent, would repent, and then God would forestall his judgment. And then, in fact, that is precisely what happened. Jonah had barely been in Nineveh one day, just one day, when a remarkable spiritual awakening rocked the place. Jonah's message was short. Chapter 3, verse 4. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. At that simple warning from Jonah, Scripture tells us the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Verse 5 in chapter 3. The pagan city repented of the evil they had done. The revival went through the entire population, estimated at 600,000 people. Even the king arose from his throne in verse 6, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. It was the most extraordinary spiritual revival the world has ever seen to the most pagan society in the world. God is mighty, and he can save to this day, history has never seen another awakening that happened in Nineveh. But Jonah was not pleased. His worst fear was coming to pass before his eyes. Still, he hoped to see God's judgment carried out. So he camped. On the, this has only been one day into the 40-day warning, right, that judgment was coming. So he's going to camp out and wait and see what happens 40 days from now. And... That was in verse chapter 4, verse 5. And what did happen is not as familiar to most people as Jonah's experience with the fish, or some people called it a big whale. But it reveals the main point of the book of Jonah. God was giving Jonah a lesson about the glory of divine compassion. These are the closing verses of Jonah. Jonah is bivouacked in the desert outside of Nineveh keeping his bitter vigil, Jonah 4, 6 through 11. And if you want to turn there, I'm going to read that section to you, Jonah 4, 6 through 11. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head for de to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the, just the very next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came upon, when the sun came up, that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. This is just like four or five days after he... The, the Ninevites were saved. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh? 
the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference from their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. That's the end. You know, that is surely one of the strangest finales in all scripture. We are not told what became of Jonah. I don't know if he sat there for another 40 days or not. We have no idea whether his attitude changed after this or he remained, the, 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 like I just said, the entire 40 days, still hoping for the destruction of Nineveh. We get no glimpse of how Jonah responded in his heart to the Lord's tender admonition. We know nothing of his further ministry. Scripture is quiet. History is even silent about the long-term effects of the revival in Nineveh. History, not Scripture, history. But the lesson God was teaching Jonah and all Israel was very clear. God is loving, merciful, patient, and compassionate towards sinners. You know, and I always wondered why the first book that William Tyndale translated from the Old Testament was the book of Jonah. And maybe it's because of this compassion and loving kindness that's demonstrated in the book of Jonah is why Tyndale picked it. But I don't know that. But for some reason, Tyndale picked the book of Jonah to translate first in the Old Testament to English. What happened to the prophecy of Nineveh's destruction? When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. That was in chapter 3, verse 10. So that raises a question. Does this simply, does this imply some changeableness in God? He said he was going to smite him in 40 days, and he didn't. The King James Version of verse 310 is even more forceful. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Is that a contradiction of Numbers 2319? God is not a man that he, will sh he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will he not make it good? But this is no contradiction. It is a figure of speech that assigns human thoughts and emotions to God. Scripture uses this technique to explain to us these truths about God that cannot be expressed in literal human terms. Jonah 3.10 does not mean that God actually changed his mind. Quite the contrary, it was the Ninevites who changed. The turning away of God's wrath was perfectly consistent with his eternal loving character. Indeed, if he had not stayed his hand against Nineveh, what would that have signaled? A change in God. Would that would have signaled a change in God for his gracious promise overrides all his threatened judgments. Jeremiah 18.8 If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. The prophecy of doom against Nineveh was issued against a people who were haughty, violent, and God-hating pagans. No such threat was ever uttered against humble, penitent, clothed in sackcloth and ashes. The revival utterly changed the people of Nineveh. So God stayed his hand of judgment and forgave them out of his love. 
what happened was, of course, God's design from the beginning. Jonah seemed to understand this. He sensed that the prophetic warning was intended by God to turn the hearts of the Ninevites. That was why he fled towards Tarshish at the outset. Certainly God, far from the being surprised by the turn of events, was sovereign over every detail of the unfolding drama. And this is another takeaway from this lesson. God's in control of everything. He is sovereign. The one who oversees every sparrow, who even numbers the hairs of our heads, is supremely able to make all things work together for his perfect goals or ends. In every detail of everything, all his purposes are fulfilled and all his good pleasures is accomplished, as Isaiah 46.10 reminds us. Nothing can thwart, thwart, frustrate, or improve the perfection plan, the perfect plan of God. Acts 15, 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He providentially controls everything that comes to pass according to a plan he decreed from the foundation of the world. And we need to remember that in the times that we live in. God is still in control. Throughout the book of Jonah, we see God at work in divine providence, sovereignly orchestrating all the events in accordance with his eternal purposes. We are told, for example, that God appointed the fish that swallowed Jonah, 117. God knew he was going to be thrown overboard, and he had that fish right there at the right time. Now, in the closing chapters of the book, we read three times that God appointed certain things to be graphic illustrations to Jonah as God taught the prophet a lesson about divine compassion. These illustrations demonstrate how God determines even the smallest details of all that happens so that everything works together for his own glory and for the good of those who love him. Here God was sovereignly directing everything, not only for the Ninevites' good, but for Jonah's good as well, even though what ensued was not entirely to Jonah's liking. God gave that pouting prophet a series of object lessons to rebuke his lack of love for the people of Nineveh. First, God appointed a plant to grow up over Jonah to shade him from the desert sun during his vigil. Scripture said Jonah was extremely happy about that plant, 4-6 that we just read. Jonah probably saw that plant as a token of God's favor to him. That first day that that plant was giving him shade. Oh, wow, God is so good. Perhaps he thought he could read the hand of divine providence in this event. After all, a single plant miraculously shooting up in the middle of the desert in just the right place to provide shade for Jonah must signify that God was on his side, not on the side of the Ninevites. Well, wow, three more nine days from now. Wow, look out. Jonah might have even thought it meant God was preparing to destroy Nineveh after all. The prophet's mood immediately changed, though, from uh, anger, uh, change, changed from anger to delight because he, he thought this was all a good sign. But at dawn, on the very next day, God appointed that appointed a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered and died. I wonder how big that worm got. Worse, God appointed a hot wind, another one. Uh, God appointed a hot wind that sapped all the prophet's strength. 
and suddenly made his circumstances thoroughly uncomfortable. God was still working all things for Jonah's good, but the prophet did not see it that way. His mood changed again. Now he was angrier than ever. He even begged God to let him die. God rebuked the wayward prophet for his failure to understand divine compassion. And it's a good thing that he's rebuking him. You know he's saved. He's not condemned. He's being disciplined because God loves him too, just like he showed his love to the Ninevites. He reminded Jonah that Nineveh was filled with young children, more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their left and their right hand. That's the way to describe the children in Nineveh. And that's where you can extrapolate that to maybe 600,000 people altogether from that number, the, bringing in the adults into the picture. They would all be destroyed if God poured out his wrath on the city. The Lord pointed out that Jonah was so selfish about his own personal comfort that he had more feeling for the plant than for the people of Nineveh. Notice how Jonah's irrational feelings for the plant, for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow. Contrasteth with God's compassion for his own creation. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city? Romans 9 echoes the same idea. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Does not the potter have the right over the clay? If God chose to be merciful to the inhabitants of Nineveh, he had every right to display his saving love that way. On the other hand, Jonah himself, a recipient of God's wondrous grace, had no right to resent God's compassion for others. He also had no right to be so devoid of compassion towards these people. From a human perspective, it is certainly understandable that Jonah, together with virtually all in Israel, would have preferred that God simply destroy Nineveh. It had been their enemy for centuries. But the human perspective obviously is flawed. God is, God is a God of patience, compassion, and grace. Because God was willing to show mercy to a wicked society, Jonah's preaching ushered in one of the most remarkable revivals in the history of mankind, in spite of Jonah himself. And God was glorified in such a display of his great love for sinners. And that brings us to the next teaching point we get from this. God's gift of repentance. God's loving kindness and tender mercies lavished on such an evil culture gives us an insight into the very heart of God. It is his nature to love, to show mercy, and to have compassion. But mark this carefully when he stayed his hand of judgment on Nineveh. He did not merely overlook the sins of that society and allow them to continue in their pursuit of evil. He changed the hearts of the Ninevites. God changed the hearts of the Ninevites. They didn't change themselves. God changed it. The revival was a miracle wrought by God. We're all miracles, all of us that are saved. As Jonah himself testified in chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is 
of the Lord and no one else. In Christ alone, in God alone. God is the one who brought the Ninevites to repentance. He awakened them spiritually so that they mourn for their sins. They turn from their wicked way, but it was God who turned them. Lamentations 5.21 reminds us, Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. True repentance from sin is always a gift of God. Paul wrote Timothy a bit of advice that would have been apropos to Jonah in 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. The very act of the Ninevites' repentance was confirmation of the sovereign grace and the loving mercy of God. He had not turned their hearts, they would never have... Had he not turned their hearts, they would have never turned. Yet they did turn, and almost immediately. Remember in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The king shed his kingly garments and put on a sackcloth and proclaimed a fast. It was astonishing that a culture of wicked arrogance could instantly be reduced en masse to the lowest humility in sackcloth and ashes. Boy, would we love to have that happen in our country. Some have suggested that the faith of the Ninevites stopped short of true saving faith. But that doesn't square with Scripture. It seems obvious from our Lord's own testimony that for multitudes in Nineveh, this represented an authentic saving conversion. In fact, Jesus cites the Ninevites' repentance as a witness against his own generation in Matthew 12, 41, and is repeated in Luke eleven thirty two. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. He's talking to the Pharisees, right? The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Son of God talking to the Pharisees, and they won't repent. An entire generation of Ninevites was thus brought into the kingdom of God solely by his loving grace. What were the long-term effects of this revival? Neither scripture nor history gives us much information. What we know is not encouraging. Sadly, within a generation or so after the revival, Nineveh reverted to their old ways. Just that first generation, it appears, is the only generation that was saved. The next generation went back to the old ways. And we'll see that next month. Godly, God finally had to pour out his wrath on the city. That brings us to, to, mind, uh, to mind a crucial truth about God's love and goodness. Luke 20, 12, 48. For from everyone who has been given, much shall be required. If we don't teach the next generation, it'll get lost. And it's incumbent on us to teach the next generation. God's grace and privileges are not to be taken lightly. With greater privilege comes greater responsibility. 
We've all been saved. We have the responsibility to teach the word of God to the lost and dying world. And those who sin against God's goodness only deepen their inevitable condemnation. The history of Nineveh illustrates that truth in a very graphic way. That one blessed generation saw the goodness of God when what they deserved was wrath. Only eternity will reveal how many souls were swept into the kingdom in the glorious revival. But the glory soon departed. The memory of the revival was short-lived. Tragically, the offspring of the revived generation of Ninevites returned to their forefathers' extreme wickedness. The mercy of God to that generation was soon forgotten. It's not written in any history books about the story of Nineveh. Uh, and Jonah, except from the Old Testament, that we know this. And the younger generation to turn to the sins of their fathers. God's goodness to the city of Nineveh became a distant memory. There is no evidence that the revival ever penetrated beyond Nineveh either into the rest of the Assyrian nation. In fact, what we know of Assyrian history suggests the revival's impact was limited to the one generation and the one city. Assyria as a whole remained hostile to God of Israel. We would know nothing, as I mentioned, about how God's grace was poured out on the wicked city, except for the book of Jonah. Those years after Jonah's revival were the very years when Assyria became the dominant world power, increasing in military might and political influence. Riding the crest of God's mercy, Nineveh became the most powerful city in the entire world, the nucleus of Assyrian domination. Meanwhile, Assyria continued to wage war against the people of God. Soon, Genev soon, Jehovah God was once again more hated than feared by the Ninevites. But God was not through with Nineveh. The final page of her history was not yet written. That wretched city, which had tasted so much of divine goodness, only to spurn God himself was about to learn what a, a fearful thing it is to fall in the hands of the living God. Stay tuned for next month and the severity of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's so many truths that have come out of this quick study on your prophet Jonah. We, we thank you for the, the teaching. We thank you for the lessons that you've taught us from this. And may we take them to heart that we didn't deserve the grace that you gave us. But you saved us anyway. It's just, we can't thank you enough, Lord. And we'll be in eternity thanking you forever for what you have done for us. And we have to take into light why you have left us here on this earth after saving us, and that is to continue to preach your word, to be the light and the salt of the earth. May we carry out that mission and faithfully preach your word to a sick and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.